0: Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them.
1: I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad. 'Cause
0: you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I
1: thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was gonna make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was gonna get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders
0: Podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard, the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the the ear of the patient when they're really doing it
1: tough. I reckon you can do this, you know, I believe you're gonna get there. The eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. It took half of my life, my eating disorder, and it
0: literally nearly took my life.
1: But we've seen recovery in in kids, in teenagers, in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope. At
0: ended.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Carolyn Costin with me. Now Carolyn is a dear friend of mine and an amazing colleague. Um, she is a world-renowned eating disorder clinician, author and international speaker. Recovered from anorexia in her 20s as a young therapist, Carolyn recognised her calling after successfully treating her first eating disorder client. Carolyn was the first to publicly take the position that people with eating disorders can become fully recovered. After 15 years in private practice and running hospital programs, Carolyn was determined to improve the relapse rate and recognised a gap in the eating disorder field. She opened Montanito, the first residential facility in a home setting, surrounded by nature, where evidence-based treatment was combined with alternative therapies such as meditation and yoga. And clients were retrained to shop for, prepare and cook food. Carolyn's contributions to the field are extensive. Her six books, service in every major eating disorder organisation, three decades of training professionals worldwide, free study groups and the outstanding success of Montanito – all spurred Carolyn to international acclaim. In 2016, Carolyn left Montanito and created the Carolyn Coston Institute. The institute offers continuing education for clinicians, eating disorder coach certification, mentor training, and educational support for families of those with eating disorders. Carolyn is an active, passionate, inspiring force in the eating disorder field. You
1: truly are. You absolutely are. Well, thank you for that introduction. I I hear things like that and I always think, well, I've done a lot of stuff. (laughs) You sure have. A lot of
0: groundbreaking instrumental stuff that is going to continue to change lives for many, many years to come. That's for sure. Now, your Eight Keys to Recovery are the foundation for the work I do as a CCI recovery coach, and they also inform all the work our Dead team does in the community. And because I use the Eight Keys multiple times a day, every day, I know all too well what an integral role they've got to play in eating disorder recovery. But I know there'll be some listeners out there who aren't aware of just what a powerful tool they can be. So today, I want to, with you, go through each of the Eight Keys and discuss their importance so let's start with key one motivation patience and hope what would you say to people who feel like they'll never be able to find the motivation to change
1: I would say you know join the crowd of of people I've treated with eating disorders because I really you know people used to say to me Oh, people have to be motivated to come to treatment. In fact, my first brochure for Montanito, the residential that the first residential opened here in the U.S., I had on the cover, you don't have to be ready to give up your eating disorder to come here. Because I think part of what you do when you're helping somebody, whether it's a coach or a therapist or a dietitian or a psychologist, we have to help them to get ready because people are ambivalent when they have an eating disorder because they're living with this, as you know, my philosophy, this eating disorder self in there that is afraid that doesn't want to give it up, that get, you know, has a voice that tells them all these things to do. So by definition, I think people are ambivalent. So I think that's part of our work. So I always say, you know, I understand that you feel that way. Um, I never, when people used to talk to me years ago when I had my own eating disorder and they would talk about getting rid of it, how I felt was that's getting rid of me. I don't want to get rid of me. And I didn't understand what I was going to be without it or who I was going to be without it. So I think we have to be, that's why I started the eight keys book with that, because I think we have to understand that when we're looking for motivation, we have to look for little tiny openings and cracks in, you know?
0: Absolutely. And patience is so important because recovery is definitely not a linear process. It's an absolute roller coaster and you have to strap yourself in and hold on tight, don't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think people are most afraid that you know, uh, if they try it for a while and they're not getting better, they're afraid that it's not going to go away or it just doesn't work for them or whatever. And I often say that pe- when people don't get better, it's because they gave up too soon. And I get that there's a lack of resources and all that. I-, I get that it's hard to get treatment and that it isn't always fair. You know, there are populations that don't have the kind of access that maybe you or I had, but But well, I say I had and then I and then I like to explain to people, I never went to a treatment center or even a psychologist because back then, I'm so old now, back then, 50 years ago, there weren't those things. So I tell people, you know, it does take a lot of patience, but don't compare your journey to anybody else's and don't think you can't do it because I've treated people who have had an eating disorder for 40 years who are recovered today, you know.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, I always come back to my three C's, the conscious, consistent commitment. And it's every moment of every day, you've got to consciously, consistently commit to making decisions that are aligned with your healthy self, aligned with your values. You can't just do it, you know, um, for a week and think, well, you know, that was too hard. I'm eating sort of screaming at me. So I'm just going to, you know, turn turn back to it. It doesn't work like that. It's that consistency. And that's how we know that we change neural pathways and are able to, to have sustained recovery
1: and then it gets easier and easier it's like learning how to ride a bike or play an instrument or anything like that if you got really discouraged the first time you tried to ride a bike or even your first week or or playing something like a violin that's even better I mean it sounds all squeaky and scratchy you know and and maybe you can just play a few notes maybe you just get your fingers right it's a long time before you play a song and a much longer time before you pick it up and just can't play impromptu, you know? And I think that's a really good analogy because people feel like they're not going to be able to do it. But the thing is, if you practice those consistency and commitment and all that, you, you actually, your brain changes enough to the point where it's not so hard anymore. In fact, I, you and I, we don't struggle for recovery still. We don't do it one day at a time. We're not, it, it now has changed our brain. So it, we would struggle if we tried to have an eating disorder at this point. Exactly.
0: No? It's automatic. It's the new normal, right? It's You just don't even yeah. think about it. It just happens. And it's the most beautiful thing. And everybody can achieve that if they really want to.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always – everybody who walks in my door or nowadays <laughs> sees me on Zoom, uh, I always uh, have the premise that you can get better, you know? let's go for it. Um, why not? And there might be some people who, you know, and getting better has a whole spectrum, you know, I yes. have a definition for recovered. And I certainly believe in people can be recovered. But I know there are people who will have, who have had eating disorders for a really long time, and maybe they're going to have some consistent um, problems. Like, for example, I have some problems with my knees, because I ran so many years with uh, a a starved (laughs) nutritional base, you know? So yeah, I have some bone density problems, but that doesn't mean no matter how much damage you've done, I don't think it means you can't get better. I've just been around too long and seen too many people like a 72 year old woman who had an eating disorder for over 50 years. I've seen people like that recover or people with dissociation and severe trauma or several comorbid diagnoses get better. So I look at everybody as if they can. I know not everybody does. I, I don't have that kind of view that, oh, everybody gets better, because I know people who haven't gotten better. In fact, you and I know people who have died. So yeah. I'm yeah. realistic about that. And I know that there are some people living in a In a situation where they're just sort of doing harm reduction, you know, chronic Mm -hmm. anorexia living their lives. But I always in fact, I had one contact me this week, I've always held out hope for her saying, whenever you're ready, I'll jump back in with you, Mm. you know, Mm. even though it's probably been over 20 years. Mm. I think
0: the power of hope is is so important. It's something I talk about a lot because I firmly believe that holding hope for someone in their darkest hour when they can't see the light is often one of the most powerful gifts that we can give someone. I know that I wouldn't be here today if my family hadn't continued to hold hope for me when my treatment team had completely given up on me. Uh, It's so essential.
1: And it's so interesting now because that's what people say about you as a coach. You know, everything I've heard people say about you as a coach is, is, is the hope. I mean, they say other things too. And they say this about coaching in general from recovered people. I mean, I think that's an aspect that coaching and people who are recovered can provide that is just different. And for a long time wasn't recognized. For a long time, it's let the professionals handle it because this is such a complex and hard to treat disorder. But you know, um, my first tour in Australia, my very first tour, speaking all over, o- all over the country, I-, I was astonished how many people came up to me and said, I've never met anyone who was recovered. That was in 2011 or 12. I can't remember exactly, but I was blown away because I had already been in this country working as a therapist since and- 19, oh, I hate to say this, <laughs> 1979, and I already had Montanito, and I I was just astonished that people were saying they hadn't met anybody. And think about that: if you had any other illness, if you had cancer or depression or anything else, and you had never met anybody who was recovered, um, so I think that that I think one thing that recovered people can do is really get across the message about this uh, that's in this first key about. It, motivation, patience, and hope, all of that. Because if you lived it and you're over the other side and you can be a role model for, yeah, it's worth it. Because sometimes, as you know, going through recovery does not feel like it's going to be worth it. It's like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I feel worse. Especially when you first start getting better. I feel worse. I don't feel better. Mm-hmm. I feel worse when I gain weight. I feel worse when I keep a binge and don't purge, you know? So I feel... I think a lot, I've trained a lot of therapists and not all have been recovered. Same thing as coaches, not all are recovered, but I do think there's a special aspect that recovered people can bring. Mm,
0: I completely agree with you. Now, key two is your healthy self will heal your eating disorder self. I love it when I start coaching someone who hasn't been introduced to your eating disorder self, healthy self concept, because it's like they have this light bulb moment. It is such a powerful concept that it infiltrates into all aspects of recovery Now, people are often surprised when I say that the goal of recovery isn't to get rid of your eating disorder self. It's to learn from it, discover the needs that it's meeting, and strengthen your healthy self to the point where it can take over its job. Can you share with our listeners why this is so important?
1: Well, it's weird because, well, first of all, this is if I could only teach or share one thing, if you put me in a room with coaches or therapists or dietitians or doctors or family members or clients, I would say, and I can only teach him one thing, it would be this. So this is key to getting better because we are all born um, with this healthy core self in there. You're not born with an eating disorder. So how did this whole eating disorder personality develop? Because it does develop. When you think about it, it has a different set of rules for you than it has for your best friend or anybody else. It has a way it talks to you and you can hear it talking to you. So if you can hear a voice talking to you, that means there's some other voice that's listening, right? So automatically, you know, there's two parts in there. But people get confused when I say we don't want to get rid of it. We don't get rid of that aspect of self. We integrate it. And that's, that's important because what, sometimes I hear parents say, what do you mean you don't get rid of it? I'm spending all my hours trying to help my daughter get rid of it. And I say, well, you get rid of the eating disorder behaviors, but that self, that part, that ego state that has developed, developed for a reason. And it's our alarm system. It's the signal that says something's wrong. I need something attended to. I'm a sensitive person. Um, I have needs that I'm unable to express. And what happens over time when someone develops an eating disorder is they have this certain way of thinking or whatever, and over time, they develop this set of rules, the set of behaviors that they have to do, and I ultimately started calling that the eating disorder self, and getting people to the point where, that they realize that that part has taken over, and so what do we have to do? We have to strengthen that core healthy self in there, and that's who takes care of the eating disorder self, not me, not you as their coach not their parent, and nobody else can really do it. We can put people in hospital. We can force the weight gain. You know what I mean? We can mm-hmm. monitor people to make sure they don't binge or purge or whatever. But if they don't have the internal shift where their own internal healthy self gets stronger, they can't maintain it. And, uh, and the beauty of it is to say to people, the eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power. It's a part of you. Exactly. It's not some entity. And, and I think treatment sometimes has led people to believe people talk about the eating disorder as if it's this. This is where people mistake my concept sometimes. They talk about the eating disorder as if it's this outside alien being that's landed on the person and is doing all these things to the person like the illness is externalized too much and I'm very it's very important to me that we call it the eating disorder self rather than I don't say your eating disorder is talking to you or the eating disorder is talking to you I say your eating disorder self is speaking now what do you want to say back And, you know, if they don't know what to say back, then you know what I do. I say, what would you say to your best friend Mm -hmm. if she said she has to go throw up pizza because uh, it's going to make her fat? What would you say to her? And isn't it astonishing how people are like, oh, I wouldn't say that to her. Mm -hmm. So it's like your healthy self is in there. It's just gotten quiet for you.
0: Oh, absolutely. And when clients say to me, oh, but I don't think I can ever find that again. and I, don't, You can, but again, it comes down to wanting to. And as you said to me just before, it's like you give it the power. Like that moment that I realized that I was the one giving my eating disorder the power. And if I chose to channel my time and energy towards recovery rather than going down the eating disorder rabbit hole, then I could turn this thing around. If I don't listen to it and I don't buy into it and I don't throw fuel on that eating the of fire, then it's not going to burn. Those flames eventually are going to dissipate and the fire will burn out.
1: Yeah, it's just hard, right? It's hard to take those first few steps because what we talked about earlier, that it doesn't always feel good in the beginning. People are afraid. They think I'm going to do all this and it's not going to be worth it. They're afraid they're not going to be able to accept their new body, whatever that is.
0: Oh, excruciating, like so excruciating, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But then as I always say to clients, the best thing that I've done because it gave me life back. And so I think that's why it's so important to have lived experience, people to be able to go, right, I can see living proof that life is better on the other side and to then help them to believe that they can do that too.
1: Yeah, and I think it's good to remind people that, you know, you just need to be taking little steps in the right direction. How many steps did you take towards your eating disorder today and how many steps did you take towards recovery or towards, Mm. you know, your healthy self today? You know, I mean, I think people get overwhelmed by the enormity of what Mm. it takes to be recovered. And so I always like, don't even look at that. Yeah. Let's just see can you eat a little bit more today, you
0: know. One decision at a time, because that's why I say to clients, is all these multiple choice points or decisions across a day. Every single one of them matters. So let's just focus at, on each one and seeing whether you can draw your healthy self out and, and make sure that you're aligned with that in, that in that process. And one of the very first things I do with clients is to get them to differentiate their values from the values of their eating disorder and then we come back to this again and again when their eating disorder is absolutely screaming at them and they can't see the wood from the trees I ask them if you do x behavior right now will that be aligned with your values and will it get you closer to the life you truly want Um, and we know that eating disorders are experts at disconnecting us from our emotions and our values
1: aren't they yeah, exactly. So we've right. got to make sure it's aligned. Now, Kim- and that's why I always tell people, you you have to get those two parts of self-talking to each other. Mm. If That's why I always am having them, even if someone says, well, you know, I don't even know what I'm thinking before I binge, I just sit down and write. Write all the reasons why you want to binge and then write back all the reasons why you don't want you when you're telling me when you're in session with me. There's your two parts right there. We have to get people... You know, when I say um, the the problem is not, uh, or the healing is not going to be between me and you. This is between you and you. We have to get them talking from both parts of self because that's the way you strengthen the healthy self. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Now, important part. It's
0: so so important, integral. So key three. It's is it's not about the food. And this is often one that people are surprised by. Talk to me about what you mean by it's not about the food.
1: Well, because food is, you know, uh, cannot be more powerful than we are as human beings. So it can't just be something like it's not an addiction to sugar or white flour. You know, there were a lot of movements to um, work on eating disorders from a 12-step perspective. When I was early, early on in my career, I would hear about, you know, people going to OA groups and things like that. And I would think, okay, this, this is not about the food. It's about so many other things that food has come to represent in a person's life in a sense that there are all these underlying issues. And we know now there are genetics involved and there's trauma involved and there's all these psychological stressors and perfectionism and diet culture and so many things involved that create an eating disorder. So you can't just be about the food. And I think it's important to look at those underlying issues and to look at individual traits, like we've come up with this whole thing about the traits that people have, traits that people with anorexia, for example, the perfectionism and the, the sort of drivenness, like type A, you know, kind of personality or anyway, so we've looked at different genetics and, and I, I think it's important that we look at those things and help people with those things um, because people, you know, I, I think just trying, for example, I treated people early on who came to me and said, you know, I'm just going to avoid sugar and white flour, and then I think I'll stop binging and purging because that's what I binge and purge on. Then they, like, if you if that's really important to you and you want to try that, I'm here. I'm your therapist. Let's try to work through it. They were very committed to the 12 steps. Let's say, and then they did that, and they got they stopped they stopped binging on things like you know desserts and cookies and stuff. But guess what? They started binging on roast beef and potato chips and stuff that had no sugar and white flour. So it, it realized there's a behavior, this a, a purpose, this is serving. And you know, having said that, we're going to get to key five, which is it is too about the food. Only because you can't heal an eating disorder unless you heal your relationship with food. Mm-hmm. It's just that the food itself did not cause the problem. Mm.
0: Mm. And one of the things I love as a coach is when I see clients learn to harness those personality characteristics to help them in their recovery rather than being used to fuel the eating disorder. I mean, that is just such a powerful yeah. shift.
1: Yeah. Someone asked me today, have you, someone sent out, uh, is, is writing a book or something and sent out something and said, I know I've heard you talk about this before. Did you write it anywhere? I go, yeah, I've written about it. Yeah, you have all these traits. and." I remember when the researchers were putting up on slides at conferences, you know, people with, uh, let's just take anorexia because it's an easy, easy one to talk about, you know, anxiety, perfectionism, obsessiveness, um, control, you know, junkies, basically. And I looked at those traits and, and you know me, I mean, I thought, you know, that sounds so pejorative and negative. And I was born with these traits. I'm not going to get rid of these traits I was born with. So, uh, and I was already recovered when I was going to these conferences. So I'm looking at this thinking, well, I think my perfectionism helps me be very detail oriented, you know, and I don't think of myself as, as, um, have anxiety. I think I'm just a high energy person. So I took all those traits and started writing about, so my clients could see, look, you can use your traits as assets or liabilities. You're not going to get rid of them. You can mitigate it a little bit, you know, how strong you are with a certain trait or not. You can do some work on yourself, but you're going to have your basic genes and and they're not going anywhere. So how do you use it for your higher good, you know? Mm. Oh, I
0: remember it was something that helped me a lot in my recovery when I suddenly realized all this determination. Uh, I could actually channel it into recovery and imagine what I could achieve there if I stopped being so dogged in uh, going down this eating disorder path.
1: Yeah, I always tell people, you know, in high school I got straight A's and anorexia nervosa, right? <laughs> Me too. I was upon the same thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yeah three is about that. Key three is about looking at those things, but not getting stuck on them. Because I am a firm believer that you can get better, even if you don't have an understanding of why you got sick. And I think that's really important. Sometimes you get lost in therapy, trying to figure out why, why, why. And you can just start working on the how. And that's what coaching is about, working on how do I get better? Even if I understand why, how do I get better?
0: Exactly. You know? It's not suddenly you don't have this transformational moment where you go, aha, this is why I've done well. Yes. So now I yeah. can suddenly recover. <laughs> it doesn't work like yeah.
1: that. Right, right, right.
0: Now, feel your feelings, challenge your thoughts is key number four. And it's one that I find myself coming back to again and again with clients. The power of simply feeling feeling your feelings is all too often underestimated, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I think people have learned uh, over time that the behaviors um, can push away their feelings, you know, can numb their feelings, can distract them from their feelings. And so it becomes a tool that, like you said, in the brain gets wired to, oh, I know how to feel better about this. My boyfriend broke up with me, I'll go binge and purge, you know, Um, or I'm, you know, worried about this grade or whatever. I'm not going to eat my food or, you know, I'm going to get back at my mom who I'm angry at. I'm not going to, I'm going to throw away the lunch she made me to take to school. There's all kinds of things that happen that we end up dealing with our thoughts and feelings through our eating disorder behaviors. But, and this key is really about learning how to sit with feelings, learning how, here's an important part of it. Learning that we're not our thoughts or feelings. We're this underlying essence, soul, self in there that has thoughts and feelings and people get very indoctrinated because no one's really teaching that taking a step back, you know, Mm. taking a step back and, Being the observing self and learning to put a space between your thoughts and your action, between your feeling and your action. When you learn to start witnessing your thoughts and witnessing your feelings, um, you get much more uh, control over how you respond to them.
0: And now, many of my clients that are listening will be so sick of hearing this, but I think it's important to also remember that feelings aren't necessarily facts. Even when your eating disorder does its utmost to convince you otherwise, I'm very, very big on that. It's like it's a feeling, but is it actually a fact?
1: Yeah, same thing with thoughts. I mean, so and so didn't call me tonight, and that must mean she doesn't like me anymore. You know, we exaggerate. I mean, we, we, the thing is, we have to check out those things. It's fine to have the feeling in our body because trying to get rid of it, I mean, I think just causes another problem because I don't think we really get rid of feelings by numbing out with behaviors. I think we just postpone because they'll come back. You know? So, um, yeah, I think it's having people take the time to check out the facts about something. Um, but I also think Even if something isn't a fact, let me give you an example. Like if someone, let's talk about feeling fat, which is a whole different thing of feeling. I mean, when someone tells me they feel fat, I don't even try to talk them out of it. What I say is uh, you feel that way, but I want you to, to describe it in a different way. Because fat is a relative term. You feel fat compared to what? Compared to me, compared to your baby sister, you know, compared to who? And so what, and, and especially if someone is, um, I want them to describe it and I want them to describe what they want instead, you know, like, what is it you're trying to feel? What, 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 what can you say that you and I can both agree on? And maybe it'll come to, I feel uncomfortable being in this body. Okay. I can agree to that. I'm not going to agree to, uh, you saying I feel fat because that's not a fact because you weigh, you know, 40 kilos. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. So you can have, that's just a for example, but you can have this conversation with people and try to come up with what is something that, when we're looking at facts, what is something we can both agree on as a fact? So I want people to understand, I'm not, I don't want to dismiss their feeling, but I want to come up with something that makes sense to both of us. Okay, I feel uncomfortable being this big in my body. Maybe saying that, you know, mm. and then, okay, and what are you planning to do about it? What are you willing to do about it? What have you tried to do about it? And how has that worked for you? You know, what do you, what do you get from that? What's the cost benefit analysis of that, you know? Mm.
0: Reframing it. So, so powerful. Um, one of the things I'm constantly reiterating to clients in terms of, challenging their thoughts is that it's no use just challenging them once like I said before. Clients will say to me well I tried to challenge them but it didn't work or I tried but then my eating disorder just got too loud and that's literally what led me to developing my three C's the conscious consistent commitment because it's in the repetition of the challenges where we see that sustained progress and you've got to get up off that floor and do it again and again and again even when your eating disorder is screaming at you you know, there's this great quote: "Things scream when they're dying, right?" So <laughs> you know you're doing the right thing if your eating disorder is screaming at you.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's don't listen and 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 also remember if the eating disorder part is dying, it's not going to die, be dead and gone. It's go, it means that the behaviors it's not going to be able to use those behaviors. It it as an ego state will be integrated into your core mm-hmm. self, so you don't ever really lose. Them. That part of you, you just lose the behaviors mm. it thought it needed to use, which is also yes. helpful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk about the power of eating disorder self, healthy self, dialoguing. It was something I used daily throughout my recovery. I had cue cards that went everywhere with me with my little uh, eating disorder self-statement, my healthy self-statement. And, you know, in the beginning, of course, I had to use those cards over and over again to remind myself what the healthy self-response was. And I vividly remember the day where I had a thought and I automatically came up with the healthy (laughs) self-response back without having to pull out my cue cards and I knew I was getting somewhere.
1: (laughs) That's why I think it's good to start with just statements. And that's why I will ask clients, Give me, you know, 10 statements that your eating disorder self has said to you in the past day or the past few days, whatever it is. And then we write them down and I say, okay, what can you say back? I don't want to just give it to them. And this is where I also think treatment sometimes goes awry because an an eager therapist, like when I used to train therapists all the time at at the residential, an eager therapist will often jump in, you know. And say to the client, here's what you can say back or say this, or what about that? Or you deserve to eat, you know? And I always go, wait, wait, wait. We're bringing their healthy self out. That's the only way to strengthen Mm. it. So I ask the client, what would you say back? And if they can't do it, okay, then I do that thing, you know? Mm. Your friend comes to you and says that. Yeah, I'm the same too Mm -hmm.
0: because otherwise – and often my clients can get frustrated with me. So, no, just tell me what to say back. (laughs) No, this has to come from you because otherwise you're going to read this cue card. It's not going to resonate because it's something that I've come up with that it doesn't actually deeply resonate with you and your healthy self.
1: Yeah, they have to believe it too. Sometimes people come up with things and they say, you know – your body is beautiful mm. and um, I love you just the way you are. And I go, but you don't believe that. So let's not use that one. Let's find one you do believe. And maybe the one they do believe is no matter how bad I feel about my body, I'm just making it worse by my eating disorder behavior. That's good enough for me. I'll take that in the beginning mm. because mm. what I found, and I think this is really good for people to be hearing this, is that a lot of times people think, oh, I just have to make up some bullshit I would say you know, that I don't really believe. And I go, oh, no, no, no. It's the worst thing you when can do. Yeah. When we're strengthening your healthy self, it has to be something that you really do believe. You really believe this is true. Mm. And, uh, and and so you start with sentences and then you get to dialogues. And the dialogues could be, uh, like I said, before someone is about to binge or any, before any eating disorder behavior. It could be before they, take laxatives or before they go running when they're not supposed to or, you know, because they're scheduled or they have exercise addiction or trying to cut back, whatever the behavior is, being able to sit down and write all the reasons I want to do this right now. Because that's the eating disorder part raging. Because I want to do this and this and this and this and I just want people to stop telling me what to do and I should be able to run if I want to. I mean, that, go wild. Say whatever it's thinking. But then... Sit down when you can. Sometimes I can't do it right away. Sometimes I have to do it later. Sometimes I have to do it with me. Now, what would you say back? Because you come in here. We talk about um, all the reasons why you would like to change. You know, you're having problems. You are are not having your period anymore. Um, Your husband is threatening to leave. You don't want your daughter seeing you so ill. Whatever the reasons are, start writing back. Because... Where's that part of you when you felt like doing that behavior? That part of you was like pressured down, was oppressed by the eating disorder self, and we need to resurrect that part of you and give it some space and time and give it, um, yeah, give it some airtime. <laughs>
0: mm, mm, absolutely. Needs its own radio show. Um,
1: now. In the dialogue, and like you said, at first it might be uncomfortable But then they start doing it in their head, and then pretty soon, they're doing it if they think about, oh, I'm not going to eat that, it has too many calories, I got to throw that away, and they'll say, oh, no, that's ridiculous. They'll start doing it themselves, Mm -hmm. so pretty soon, the healthy self gets strong enough, you really don't even have those thoughts anymore. Mm -hmm. They just don't come. And, And that's the beauty, and that's being recovered. And it takes a while, I always say two years before I say someone is fully recovered, because Look, lots of stuff happens in our lives. And if you're like on the thread of recovery and just beginning and then a a, a something happens in your life, Mm. your mom dies or your dog dies or someone crashes your car or your boyfriend breaks up with you, we can go back to that coping skill. But if someone has gone two years and they have been recovered for two years and they haven't gone back, I feel like, okay, you're out of the woods. And people will call that arbitrary, but I've used that for a long time now. I use that hiring staff, I use that training coaches and gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's worked. It's mm. really worked.
0: Mm. Talk to me about transforming your feelings and getting them out of your body.
1: Well, I think people forget that our feelings are the way our body responds to uh, emotions. So if we're feeling, and I talk about this in the book, if we're feeling angry. Anger is just a word that we've come up with It's an English language word to describe that. But what is it really? So I want people to tell me, what, where do you feel that? If you're feeling angry, do, are your fists tight? Is your face getting red and hot? Are you clenching your teeth? Are your shoulders? Like, where do you feel your emotions? Where, and, and helping people realize that if they can help get their body back to neutral... They can help those emotions pass through quicker. So, and, and, and you can do the opposite of like, like one of the reasons people ca- say cool down when people are really angry is because you actually do get hot. Your blood pressure goes up. You, mm. you generate a lot of heat when you're angry. People say cool down, and that's not that there's a reason for that. You can actually lower people's blood pressure by putting a cool rag around their neck, for example. So there are, there are things I try to tell people to do when they describe what the feeling is in their body, like anxiety, where are you feeling it? If you're feeling your heart rate, I have a, a, a anti-anxiety breath that people can do to lower their heart rate. You know, if you're feeling, um, jealous, where do you feel that? Is it in your head? How do you calm yourself down? How do you do breathing exercises maybe to relax yourself or, or doing a yoga pose, you know, like, whatever it is. So helping people realize that feelings will pass and the way to get them to pass is to describe the feeling. And I even have clients say, instead of saying, I'm angry, say, I have anger in me right now, because that means you can get it out. I'm angry is kind of concretizing and making it solid. And, and I, it's, 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 it, it, it sounds weird in the beginning, but even if you, even if you have people say instead of i'm angry say i feel angry it's a little bit of a distance from it and i can feel not angry what what is it that i'm feeling that i need to ch- that i need to work on do i need to relax do i need to stop um tightening my fit? some people don't even realize they're tightening their jaw or whatever it is they're doing so i want people to recognize the feeling help get their body back to neutral. And then again, I'm always talking about how can people respond versus react? What we tend to do, all of us do not just people with eating disorders, something happens. We have an emotion, we have a feeling and we, we react to it. Maybe we get angry back. Maybe we go, you know, binge and purge, you know, maybe we go cut ourselves, whatever it is we do to react, or maybe we, you know, are really angry at the person and write them a nasty email but when you can get your body back to neutral then you can respond in a way that is more coming from your healthy self i think your healthy or sometimes i even say soul self when we respond and we're in that feeling and i know i've done it i mean i i teach this all the time but occasionally i'll be really mad at somebody and i'm, I'm sending them this email right now and my husband Bruce, who you know, always says, "Are you sure you want to send that right now while you're mad?" <laughs> yes, I know. I'm always sorry. I'm always sorry because what the person on the other end picks up is our anger and our energy, and not the message. It's mm-hmm. so much easier to deliver a message when we're responding versus reacting.
0: Mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more. I can just hear Bruce in my head saying, "Now, Carolyn, you sure you want?" <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Now, contrary to key three, key five is it is about the food. Now, we all know that healing our relationship with food is an absolutely essential part of recovery, regardless of diagnosis. So let's talk about your concept of conscious eating. What led you to developing these guidelines? And how does conscious eating differ from intuitive eating?
1: Um, yeah, the whole reason I came up with conscious eating is because um, two of my colleagues, I, 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 really like them both. Um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Rush, who I know in the eating disorder world. And they wrote intuitive eating and I understood why they wrote it. And they were first working with, um, binge eating population and they were really trying to help people with that and making food, you know, tuning into hunger and fullness and all these things that are important. But, but I knew from my own eating disorder and my work running hospitals and, 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 you know, the residentials that look, I mean, I need to give people with eating disorders something that they can utilize at all levels of recovery. Because when someone first comes into treatment for an eating disorder, they cannot count on their intuition. They just can't. You, you can't like my, my, if I, looked back what i thought was my intuitive eating i would have maybe an apple during the day and some salad at night you know and 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 they know that i mean th- their actually second book addresses it in a different way and a lot of their programs that they do they talk about how this only works with this and this diagnosis so uh, and in fact elise Resch, one of the co-authors told me we laughed once because she said they almost called their book Conscious Eating. So uh, I don't think that intuitive eating is a bad idea. I think it's part of conscious eating, part of being a conscious eater. I think education and, and knowledge, I think awareness, and I think intuition all come into play. Because um, And here's the thing I think about education, which some people disagree with me. But I think having nutrition knowledge is important. And I think that we have... Uh, so, so I came up with conscious eating because someone can have anorexia nervosa and be conscious about following a meal plan. And they need a meal plan because they're all over the place. They're too afraid. They want some security that if I eat this much, this is what's going to happen. Someone's watching over me. I don't trust myself. I don't want to go out of control. Is this too much... That. is this you know so I would help people and say you can be a conscious eater and follow a meal plan you can also be a conscious eater and be fully intuitive down the road so conscious eating incorporates whatever way you are but you do it in a conscious way you do it with education and you do it with awareness and you do it with um the the whatever intuition you have Or whatever guidance you need. So I came up with it, and and it's interesting. I mean, I didn't come up with conscious eating until probably when I wrote the eight keys book. I don't think I really used it. I would tell people, no, I don't think you can do intuitive eating. Like, look, I I ran residential and hospitals for too long to let someone with anorexia or someone with any eating disorder come in and right off the bat start choosing their own food. I mean, honestly. People would, uh, were, were not in control enough, were, were not educated enough, did not know their own bodies or listen to their own bodies enough to be able to do that. So I always kind of worked in this way, but I didn't write it down and put it together as a concept, I think, until I wrote The Eight Keys. And I sat down and really figured out what are the things that I think have worked with me over the last, how many years was it when I wrote that book? Because now it's like, 10 years ago, I wrote that book. Oh my God. Wow. Um, yeah. I just realized that. Uh, uh, what are all the things that I have used that has caused me to have this success I've had? I've had great success as a therapist. I mean, and, and Montanito was a very successful treatment program and, and people can look at the outcome study. I mean, it was very, we had a lot of success and I'm thinking, what were the things I did? So I came up with these principles and then, I went around and gave it to people. I gave it to people I knew at anorexia. I gave it the conscious eating quiz. Mm. I gave it to people like my niece or my sister, people I knew were pretty normal eaters. Because I wanted to see, does this conscious eating quiz actually really work? Will it really assess the person? Is it? Mm. And I I haven't sent it off to the powers that be that do standardized tests. And I'm not just trying to make a bunch of money off it as an eating disorder assessment. But I did want to see and I haven't had anybody take it who doesn't say, yeah, yeah, that I get that's me. That's my score. I uh, you know, when you add up, if you take the conscious eating quiz and then you add up your score and then you read the definition of your score, people kind of go, yeah, I I can see that. And then what I do is I have because now I'm working with coaches, I have them look back, where do people score the lowest? And you can start setting some goals in those areas. Mm. And in one of the areas is that I, I understand, you know, the difference between a food as, a, as nutrient quality and food as weight gain. And I know I'm not going to gain more weight from eating an apple than I am from eating a cookie, you know, that all foods when it comes to weight are the same. They're not equivalent in terms of nutritional quality. I mean, that would be stupid to say. But in terms of weight gain, getting people to realize I'm not going to automatically gain weight if I eat a cookie, and I'm not going to gain weight if I eat an apple. And really, as you know, working with people, they really have that convoluted in their mind. So there's a bunch of conscious eating concepts like that, or I don't purposely beat myself up or compensate if I feel like I've, quote, overeaten at times, because we all do that regularly at, at times, you know, or... You know, I'm already full. I go out to the movies. I have an ice cream. Was I full? Yeah. Am I going to beat myself up for it? No, because that's okay to do that at times. But you're conscious about it. Mm. You know why you did it. You didn't just do it because, oh, I'm going to do it because now nobody's watching me. And, you know, I didn't yeah, do it because compulsion. I'm. Yeah. Or I'm trying to cover up a feeling or mm. something like that. Mm. So being a conscious eater is knowing what you want, knowing how you want to eat, and being able to follow like what you internally have uh, know is right, but but you've had a hard time doing it. Mm. That's a lot of it too, you know. Definitely. Eating when eating when you're hungry, you know.
0: Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Now, learning to accept your natural body weight can be a really tricky part of recovery. What would be your advice to listeners out there who are struggling with this?
1: You know, I think the alternative is um, what what I like to do is say this is really the trickiest thing to talk about because – You know, we have, there are very important movements like the health at every size movement that are trying to get acceptance. So there's not stigma about weight and around weight and around body sizes. And that is an incredibly important thing. You also have to accept when somebody comes in and is super uncomfortable and they're living in a larger body and hating themselves. I think what I, one of the first things I say is, look, Non-acceptance of where your body is right now is like not accepting gravity. It just is. It's hurting you to be in non, and you know my concept about acceptance versus resistance. Mm. You're in resistance to your body, which is being in resistance to yourself. So let's see if we can start with acceptance. Then I say, I can't help you change your weight. I would have to, what would I have to do, you know? And I joke around with people, as you know, and I would say, you know, someone comes to me and says, I want you to help me, you know, I have an eating disorder, I need to lose this weight. I say, I don't know how to help people lose weight, but I do know how to help you have a better relationship with food. And if your relationship with food, as it is now, is part of why your body is the weight that it's at, and you change that relationship with food, Then you have an opportunity to see where your body goes naturally when you are no longer doing these behaviors. So if someone, so we just look at the behaviors, I can help you change those behaviors. So if you're binging all the time, or if you're graze eating all the time in front of the television and numbing out and you don't even taste things, let's look at your behaviors with food. Let me help you work on that. And if you lose weight, that's a, that's a byproduct. Mm. I, I, I never even put weight loss as a goal ever. I never have. I never will. I think it's counterproductive to do that. But I will look at their behaviors. And the other thing I ask people is, look, you know, you are ultimately going to have to decide how you, what you give and what you lose by try. If someone says, you know, well, I did all those things and I stopped binging and, now I feel like I eat, you know, the the way that I have wanted to eat and I still weigh more than I want to. Then I say, it's like, I'm not as tall as I want to be either. You know, I I don't have long, thick hair either. I don't have bright sky blue eyes either. You know, there are things that I'm older too. You know, there are things that we all have to come to in terms of the kind of acceptance we have to have about our bodies and what we are willing to do or sacrifice or how we're willing to and this is in the in the definition of being recovered. I'm not willing to betray my health or sell my soul to look a certain way, wear a certain size or reach a certain number on the scale. That's being recovered. I'm not willing to do that. I think if someone wants to stop binging and wants to start moving and go to dance class or take up surfing and they lose weight i'm okay with that and and i know sometimes people can take that and think that it means that i'm trying to help someone lose weight but i think we have to take people where they are and accept that if they have behaviors that they want to change and haven't been able to change them maybe we can help them and maybe maybe the weight their weight will change because they've done this other thing you know Mm. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense.
0: It makes complete sense, and I I agree with you 100%. It's a hard one. It's
1: a hard one. Mm, mm, It is. It is.
0: Now, key six is another essential one, changing your behaviors. And one of the most powerful things my NLP therapist, Silky, said to me when I was in the absolute depths of despair and had been told that I'd never recover, was this. You don't have anorexia. It's something that you do. It's a behavior that's become a habit, and habits can be changed if you really want to. And for me, it was this pivotal moment where I had this realization that I had the power within me to change my behaviors no matter how loud my eating disorder was. What are some of the key strategies you would recommend to listeners out there who are struggling to change their behaviors?
1: Well, first of all, as you know, years and years and years ago, when I had my whole, I mean, honestly, we're talking maybe at this point, almost 40 years ago, when I first stirred up at the first international conference and said, I'm recovered. And I was, and I was talking about why I think you can be recovered instead of recovering or always in recovery. Um, part of it was in, in, um, with, the 12 steps and alcoholism, for example, you have to say, hi, I'm Carolyn, I'm an alcoholic, for example. And I think calling yourself, that's the thing. And neuro-linguistic programming knows this. What you say to yourself is very powerful. So for one thing, I tell people, no, you're not an anorexic. You're not a bulimic. And and you, you people, you, you have all these behaviors. And yes, they coalesce in this way that we describe them just like the word anger. What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything to someone who speaks Spanish or Swahili. Anger is this whole thing. We just use this word to describe it. So we've come up with this term to describe all these behaviors you do and these ways that you're thinking now. So I think it's, I go back to the riding the bike. I go back to the thing about we're going to change. We're going to do these little steps and it'll be like learning to ride a bike. It gets easier as the time goes on. I think that bringing out, when when people realize, you said it yourself, that there's, that they have a healthy self in there, and that it comes out for other people, um, a light bulb goes on when they realize, oh my gosh, yeah, I can bring my best friend over and feed her dinner that I would never eat myself, right? Or taking care of a seven my seven-year-old niece, I would never tell her she can't have ice cream because it's too fattening. So I think those things help in terms of the little steps. But I think uh, people have to set goals. I think they have to be accountable to other people because it's so hard. I think they have to reach out, which is why that's the next key, when they are struggling because it's effing scary when you first eat pasta and keep it, when you first eat pizza and, 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 and don't go run for 10 miles the next day. I think um, people have to have somebody that they feel like they can go to, call, talk to, bring this to, to, to deal with how terrified they are without people making fun of them or without people judging them or without people, um, yeah, and I don't, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of treatment providers obviously that are not judgmental and all that, but they're not always there in the moment. That's mm-hmm. the game changer of coaching is that, you know, people can't call their therapist at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Well, some therapists do, but, but most, you know, mm. and they can, and the therapists don't have time to go out at, to the restaurant or have lunch every day with a client or you know, and so I think they need people there. People who are very entrenched in behaviors often need people there. I think people who are very entrenched in behaviors need to stop trying to figure out the triggers because when you have a long-term eating disorder, you don't need to get triggered to do it. You just, you just wake up and think about where you're going to binge and purge, or you wake up and you think, how am I going to avoid breakfast? Okay, I'm not eating till dinner, you know? When you're entrenched in an eating disorder, you don't need to be triggered, and 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 that's similar to someone with an alcohol problem. They don't. Someone who's an alcoholic doesn't, you know, drink because they get triggered. They just drink now because they drink. You know what I mean? So, when people are really entrenched, I mean, I think we need to ha- help them find um, people to reach out to, and and the twelve step group has been doing that for a long time. I mean, what I love about that community is that they've had they've had 12 step coaches and sober coaches forever been there, done that people who have gotten over their alcoholism and are there to help other people. And we just didn't have that. And that's a whole nother discussion why, but we didn't have that. And, and the other thing I do, and you know, I do this, and I have no idea how much time we have left, but, um, is sometimes I have people come up with their own internal consequences and rewards. Let's come up with, because at the moment, when you want to, let's say, binge and purge, you—it's just automatic, and 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 you can't think about. Oh, but I want to be recovered. I want to have children someday. Um, you need to think of uh, And I like deterrence better than rewards because I I well, I don't want to get into that, but I think deterrence work better. So come up with something that you really don't want to happen. And I got a coach today. I was grading, you know, the coaching thing. Mm, mm. And I had a coach today say that she has a, uh, a, a client who was really upset about the Roe versus Wade, you know, the thing that happened yes. in our country, overturning the, um, uh, right to abortion. And that, that this client came up with, I'm going to get every time I binge and purge, I'm going to give money to Republicans groups that supported overturning i went oh my god i think that's gonna work for her if she really you know what i mean so yeah, she came up with the current and it only works with when someone is super motivated they want to get better but they feel this is automatic i can't control it and i always say oh you can if the deterrent is strong enough if you really had to give money to that candidate you didn't like yeah you'd think about it And 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 you know i write in the book i have a lot of examples of people who that's been the thing. But it has to be a good relationship. It has to be the person is really wanting to get rid of their behaviors, but they have become so habitual they can't. That long-term thing doesn't work for them. Mm. So that's in that key six about changing behaviors also. Mm, mm.
0: Now, when I was in the depths of my battle with anorexia, I remember sitting on my bedroom floor bawling my eyes out, desperately trawling through your book, hoping to find the key to freedom from what had become a literal living hell for me. And I remember stopping when I came across key seven, reach out to people rather than your eating disorder. And I had this moment of realization wow. that every time something happened that I felt like I couldn't cope with, I immediately reached for my eating disorder believing that it was going to make everything better. And of course, anorexia, aka master bloody manipulator, convinced me that it did make things better. But when I saw Key 7, it honestly stopped me in my tracks and made me realize that this was all a complete farce and anorexia was just pulling the wool over my eyes yet again and that I had to find a way to start reaching out to the people that loved and cared about me Rather than this insidious beast of an illness that pretended that it loved and cared about me, when it really was just leading me to an early grave.
1: Well, you know, I did a um, a survey as, as fifteen years into my private practice before I ever even opened Montemito. I sent out a survey to all the patients I had seen and asked about how they were doing and all that, and. All the people who were recovered and, and and there were there were a lot and I don't have the date I didn't do a formal, you know, research project, but but all the people that were recovered, most of them anyway, said that one of the things they did was reach out for help at the first sign they were struggling. They also said they'd stopped weighing and they also said they journaled. So now after that, I always taught that. I taught it Montanito. I teach it in the coaching, I always because if everybody who's recovered did that, that meant something, right? And I thought, and why wouldn't we? When we have an eating disorder, we get like this, and we try to take care of the problems mm. through those behaviors. And, and we listed all, a bunch of reasons, you know, the numbing or distracting or, you know, whatever, at dealing with the anger. And I really think, and that's why I said in, in, in um, the thing about, Um, key six you know when you're struggling with a behavior reach out and that's another reason why I think coaches are making a big difference because I think we are telling clients that it's in the moment when you when you have that piece of food that you can't eat in the moment when you feel you're going to the store to buy your binge food you know in the moment when you go into the bathroom and feel like you're going to purge, reach out to me instead of the eating disorder. Mm. And a lot of people used to say to me, cause I even did that as a therapist, right? I let my clients, you know, call me, page me back in the days of pagers before there was even texting, you know, Ugh, that's so weird to think about, but you know, and, but it doesn't have to happen a lot because once the person starts doing that, You know what that means? It's bringing the healthy self forward Mm -hmm. because not their eating disorder self that wants to call me for sure. So if they now send me a text, it means their healthy self has come forward. They want to do it, but they got they squeaked that text out. That's building on the healthy self. And if I can call, or even if I text back, even if it's quick, it doesn't have to be long. And you know, you've experienced this. I can just text back you can do this, it's okay, don't give in to those thoughts, I'm here for you, um, send me a picture, let me know after you do whatever it is, yeah. that can get someone through a moment. And you get through a few of those moments and you start getting stronger and stronger.
0: Mm. You know? You've got to find someone that you trust more than your eating disorder self. Exactly.
1: Exactly right.
0: And then we know eating disorders thrive on isolation, so connection is absolutely key to recovery
1: yeah exactly right
0: now finally key eight is finding meaning and purpose which is such a beautiful one I often talk about my pros- my recovery as a process of coming home to myself and an integral part of that was finding my purpose what did finding meaning and purpose look like for you in your own recovery journey
1: You know, it's really interesting because I have to look at it in two ways. Because there's purpose that comes from, like, uh, becoming a school teacher. I first became a school teacher after college, and but I was still ill. I still had knee disorder. I was better. I had gained some weight. I wasn't at my worst. But you know how we can gain weight and convince ourselves, "Oh, I'm well." You know, I was still. Uh, they wrote down everything I ate, counted all the calories every day, weighed myself all the time, couldn't gain over a certain, you know I was not recovered um, but I had a purpose and I absolutely loved teaching and so I think continuing to be a teacher and working with the, the, the kids and stuff, I, I taught junior high and high school, I think that helped but I think there's a deeper purpose as you know which I talk about in T8, which is a purpose about the essence of being a human being, of being a soul on the planet that happens to have a body as opposed to the other way around, of realizing what it is to be a human being, not a human doing, a human being. And I don't think we get much mentoring about that. So I do think there are things like being a teacher and stuff that give you purpose. But I, I, and you have treated people who are, have, you know, presidents of companies, CEO of companies, you know, uh, physicians who feel like they have a purpose, but what they, but there's the, the more underlying one, the more soul self purpose, the more, um, what does it mean to be a human on this planet and to take care of of this body that houses the soul that I live in. And that I think is something that I started pursuing when I was in college and I continue to pursue. And I think it really, I attribute that. And to me it was studying in Buddhism, but to people, you know, it, it doesn't have to be anything in particular, but I got a lot of things from Buddhist philosophy, like acceptance versus resistance is, is a whole, is a, Long-term Buddhist thing, you know, um, and I think that when we don't want to betray our soul anymore, um, we take care of our bodies differently. I just think because this is the ha- this is the temple for it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Our so, so- it's the hardest one to talk about because I'm not a pastor or a reverend or a priest, or it's it, it is the hardest one to talk about. But I also think. It is super important and I don't think, you know, I, w- I talked about this at, at Montanito a lot and I did things like drew angel cards and we talked about what a soul is and all this stuff and I, I really think the clients would say that it was a big part of an awakening for them, probably eating disorder self, healthy self and realizing that they were actually a soul and, mm. and what that means, you know?
0: There's a beautiful Michael Singer quote that you include in the book that I just love, and it is: "In order to be who you are, you have to be willing to let go of who you think you are," and that just resonates with me so deeply.
1: Yeah, yeah I like him. Yeah, I like his books. He, 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 and he talks about those kinds of things without it being too, you know, religious. You don't have mm. to. In a, in a lot of religious dogma and stuff like that. Um, the Surrender uh, uh, the surrender Experiment, I think, was his first one, right? Is that right? I think, anyway. I think so. I anyway, so. people can look it up. My, Michael Singer. I think that was his first one. And Sam Harris, um, I think his book called Baking Up talks about things like this without it having a big kind of weird spiritual, um, yes. religious... Thing. Because I think people get turned off to that if they think they're going to have to believe in something that they can't experience or see. And these are concepts that, no, this is about your experience, you know, mm. what you, and what happens when you do X, Y, and Z, you know, like meditation isn't some religious woo-woo yoga thing. It's really just being able to close your eyes and breathe and let the thoughts go. You know, people think it's a lot more than it is, you know, and even that is still hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Now, if
0: there are any listeners out there who don't have a copy of Carolyn and Gwen's Eight Keys to Recovery from an Eating Disorder book, I implore you to get online and buy yourself a copy today. As a coach, I'm a huge fan of the workbook. So there's the book and then there's the workbook. I love the workbook because you can write directly in the book and work through it at your own pace. So if you haven't got it, go. Get online and order it today. Now, Carolyn, what do you hold hope for in terms of the future for eating disorder treatment?
1: Well, I I really – people probably know already. I really did not know after I sold Montanito. And then um, it took about a year and decided, oh, my gosh, I have to train and certify coaches I wasn't sure how it was going to go. I, I, you know, I believed in it. Just like when I first opened Montanito, I believed in residential, but there were none here. And I didn't know how it was going to go. And residential became a huge success. And now, you know, there's a lot of residentials. And now finally, Australia has one. Same thing with coaching. I think it's going to be a game changer. I think you do, too. I think that I Absolutely. First of all, one thing it does is it gives legitimacy to lived experience because it's not just using your lived experience, it's using it with training, with supervision, with certification, you know it's, 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 it combines what we knew about what was important about peer support with about uh, with professional training. And so I'm realizing now I think by in the next month I will have certified my number 100th coach. I think
0: that's so exciting.
1: And, and we're we're in 15 countries and I see what's happening and I see that people are including therapists um, and dietitians and people who might have been skeptical at first are beginning to see this is helpful. This isn't taking away from my job. It's not threatening me. These are not people who have no training. These and, and these are people who know when to get out when they need to get out. Like the thing about coaching is people thought, well, but they're not a licensed professional. But, you know, we draw the line. And and there's the professionals and there's the coaches. And there's a line there. And the coaches are trained. So I, I really now believe that, um, and Bruce said it all along, coaching is going to be the thing. It's going to be a game changer. And I went, yeah, we'll see. Now I think that's true. So I, I would like to say that I see body image problems and all that going away. Yeah, no, I don't think in my lifetime we can still fight for that. We can still try to have diversity in size, you know, and advertising and all these things. We can still try to help people who are marginalized and discriminated against because of their body size and shape. But so I still will fight. I'm not giving up on that. But in terms of what I see and what I'm, what I'm hopeful for in the field, I, uh right now, I feel like I'm, I'm on this coaching wave, and I think it's going to be a good one.
0: It is already a fantastic one, and it is 100% a game changer, and I'm so excited to be a part of it. Now, finally, are there any words of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with today, especially those who are still in the trenches fighting the brave fight?
1: I mean, I think, I hope I left a lot of words of wisdom today. I mean, I hope people could grabbed on to some things, but I think I would say, because people I think sometimes look at me now and they say, oh yeah, well you have books and you opened a treatment center and you're, this and that. And, and, and I would say, you know, I don't have any, I have no special gift. If I can be recovered, you can too. And I really believe that. I don't think, I mean, I I really want people to not do that thing that we in the world often do and say, yeah, well, that works for that person, but not for me. I think that we do that too often. I do that with other things, you know. Um, so that's what, what it would be, is that, and don't give up on yourself, because... uh Remember what I said about the clients that I've seen that have had this for years and uh, years and had a lot of things. Uh, I mean, I won't go into it again, but don't give up on yourself because um, I, I really there's a healthy self in there. You were born with it and it's in there and we just have to figure out a way to help you strengthen it. And uh, then it takes over the job. Mm -hmm. There
0: is always hope. Always. Now... I know we often reflect on our special connection as soul sisters and that bond is something that I will truly treasure forever, but today I also want to publicly acknowledge that I truly believe that you're a living legend. Your trailblazing work, I do, I do believe that, and your trailblazing work over the last 30 years has had an invaluable impact on the eating disorder field worldwide, And I'm yet to meet anyone who is as passionate and dedicated to using their lived experience to make a difference as you are. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for fighting for what you believe in, because in doing so, you have paved the way for those of us with lived experience to be able to rise up and give back to those who are still fighting the brave fight. You have quite literally changed the eating disorder treatment space forever changing and so saving so many lives in the process thank you for all that you are and all that you do you are truly one in a
1: million I am very humbled by that Millie and I know I I I really feel it from you I feel a great deal of respect and care and love so back to you thank you and I'll see you soon in Australia. I know. I'm so excited. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.